Welcome to KubeCuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Gerhard Lazu, a senior software engineer at Dagger. Welcome, Gerhard. Hi, Rich. It's nice to be here. It felt like it was only yesterday when we recorded a Ship It episode, so <laughs> it's a deja vu moment. I really like it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, so for those folks listening, Gerhard uh, hosts a podcast called Ship It, um, which is fantastic. And I uh, had the privilege of being able to appear on it recently. And so um, we've recorded with the roles reversed, mm. you know, and now now I get to be the host, which is actually kind of where I'm the most comfortable. So I'm excited about this. Yeah, I mean, I will I will have to work really hard to not behave like a host and be the guest this time, because I think this is the first podcast where I'm actually a guest, um, which is not part of Changelog, because even though I was a guest on the Changelog podcasts uh, yeah. on the a few episodes before we started Ship It with Jared and Adam, uh, I, I'm like host mode by default, so I'll try yeah. really hard. <laughs> So ship it as part of the changelog podcast network, right? Yes, yes. And yeah. it started, so initially it was one changelog episode every year where we got to talk about the improvements that we did on the changelog infrastructure. And that's where I would appear as a, as a guest and Jared and Adam would be the hosts. And um, that went really well. And people said like, let's do more of this. And then, you know, eventually we started ship it. And then I defaulted to host. And I think 42, 43 episodes later, 42 is the one with you, which is going to ship. Um, yeah, only host. That's fantastic. I will definitely link to the episode with me um, in the show notes so people can check it out. It was a lot of fun to record. We talked about the things that um, we're doing where I work at Loft Labs. We talked about ADHD. Um, all kinds of fun stuff. So uh, please do check that out. Um, yeah, I just uh, usually start off by asking people a little bit about their background. Like, how did you actually get started doing this mm. computing stuff? Okay. Now, this will, this will be a surprise uh, because I know that like, most people don't expect this. So I got into computers without having a computer. And the way that looked, <laughs> I used to, used to go to the British Library. So I grew up in Romania. And uh, I used to go to an English school. It was called William Shakespeare. And um, part of that English school, um, English was like, you know, everywhere. And computers, in my mind, equal English, right? So if you know English, computers come easy. And the, the, the interesting thing is that English was actually my third language. And it still is. English is my third language. So languages, you know, and, and, and that. So what is like, you know, Java versus, I don't know, Rust, you know, when you know, <laughs> when you know three actual languages or even more. Anyways, I used to go to the British Library and I used to get the, I remember it, HTML4 book, what it oh, came wow. out. And I would design my website in a notebook by writing HTML tags, like on paper. Yeah. And when I would get a chance to, uh, a few, I think two years later when I got a computer, I used to transcribe all those notes from the notebook on the computer and it mostly worked. I was surprised. CSS wow. was not a thing back then. CSS was like this cutting edge technology. So I started writing HTML on paper, learning about it without a computer. And that took me, I think about like a year. 
Uh, I learned about JavaScript. Uh, there was no jQuery. jQuery wasn't invented. Uh, um, uh, XHR requests were like the cutting edge, like what's like <laughs> the cusp of what's possible, you know? <laughs> so um, I, I remember yeah. those days and um, it's funny to look back on them. I actually did like a lot of HTML back then mm. too. And I, I worked as a kind of freelance web mm. designer for a while while I was in college, which is, uh, was a load of pain, yeah. um, because turns out people don't want to pay web designers much mm. and they don't want to give you the check that they said they would give you. <laughs> so yeah. that was, that was fun. But, um, the thing that I loved about those days is that since it was all so bare bones, like, like you said, you just had to know some HTML, right? So yeah. like it all was about the content. It mm. all was about what you had to say. Mm. And like, you know, you or me, like any of us, we could make a website as good as a website that Microsoft could make, right? Mm. Yeah. Like, because it was just about what you had to mm. say. And that was pretty amazing. As long as they didn't evolve Flash. I know Flash was, was the rage back then. <laughs> And uh, I tried it out and I hated it. Like I hate action script. Uh, like it was just so complicated. I really didn't like it. And I'm glad that, you know, JavaScript is still here. Action script, not so much. And when Apple decided to not have Flash on the iPhone, I was, I was saying, yes, <laughs> that is like an amazing decision. Yeah, uh, a lot of us never, were happy about that. Yeah, I never got along well with it. So this was 20 something years ago when, when I first started. And from there, I went to PHP. Uh, I, I enjoyed that PHP MySQL learning about it. I still, have, I still have the book, you know, in my library, which, which got me started with it. I think it was PHP 3 at the time. Um, yeah, so, same. Yeah. This is really funny. We, we overlap quite a bit in yeah. our experiences, I think. And um, from there, I discovered Rails and I really liked it. I, mm. I was in the Ruby ecosystem for maybe, maybe 10 years. I really enjoyed my time there. But um, I got... The whole deployment aspect of applications and of code really fascinated me. And yeah. that is just like a step away from infrastructure and operations and how to get code out there and how to not to break things. I mean, I, I took production down so many times that I like stopped <laughs> getting concerned about it. Like, okay, I'll get it down and I'll fix it. What's the big deal? You know, there's no big deal. Yeah. Uh, so I was also lucky, you know, from, from, from many respects, but, um, from there, it was just a, a, a short, you know, like a short step towards Capistrano, towards Puppet, towards Chef, mm, yeah, towards uh, Cloud Foundry, Ansible, and then Kubernetes came along, and see various CI systems, and then the list goes yeah. on. But those were those were the early days, like I think, like the first decade, first maybe decade, and and a bit. Yeah, you don't hear about Cap Capistrano anymore, but that was a really powerful tool. It was super useful. Uh, it was, but it was so complicated to, to wrap your head around. Mm. So one of the things which like after trying it for years and trying to like to work with it and like adding extensions to it was so complicated because of the DSL, it was really difficult to work with. And Chef's DSL was a little bit like that, but it was easier. Uh, Chef was also using Ruby. So, you know, writing, I forget what they're called now. Uh, I was G-Chef like uh, Gerhard Chef, <laughs> because uh, that, that, was, that was like the startup where I was like writing chef cookbooks like crazy, the Nginx cookbook and Node.js cookbook and a bunch of other cookbooks. I think the org is still on GitHub, uh, GitHub oh, G wow. Chef. Yeah, it's still there. Um, I mean, they're really old at this point, but um, 
the DSL, like the Ruby thing, that's how it, that's, it made it easy for me to, to transition into infrastructure and into to understand Chef and play with Chef and Capistrano. And I got so frustrated by those tools that I decided to write my own. <laughs> I, what did you write? Uh, it's called Deliver. Uh -huh. And it was Bash, all Bash. I was like, okay, this cannot be this complicated. And um, Gerhard delivered its archive now, but that is the uh, the project which which became really popular. It had like strategies, deployment strategies. It could be like multiple types of apps because I was part of a startup. It was called Go Squared at the time. That's where this was built. Mm -hmm. um, and they were primarily Node.js, but I was Ruby. So I was writing like event machine code and Goliath and, you know, those sorts of things. And they were focused on Node.js. And we were like, there was a bit of a competition between like, you know, my Goliath is better than your Node.js V8. And, you know, <laughs> so it was, it was really fun. But we had to make those different types of applications work together. We had static apps. We have a bunch of apps. And this was running on AWS. Yeah. So the simplest thing is let's SSH into this machine, pull the code down, do a couple of checks and do blue-green restart, you know, without any downtime. Like, how about that? Like, how difficult can it be? Obviously, I didn't know that Ansible was a thing because, you know, this was yeah. using SSH as well and under the hood. Eventually, when I discovered Ansible, I switched to, to that. But Deliver was interesting because it was really simple. And like, how far can you take yeah. this idea? And then there was a fork, eDeliver, which was Erlang deployment. And that's how I got into Erlang ecosystem. And that's how ah. Jared from Changelog started talking to me. Like, hey, we have this app, it's called changelog.com, and we are trying to deploy it. Your name came up, you wrote like a blog post about <laughs> Chef for us. Like, can you, can you help us like with this deployment? Because they were rewriting it at the time. This was, I think, 2006 yeah. or 2016. I think 2016, yes, 2016. That's right. So in 2016, they rewrote the app from WordPress to Phoenix, which is a framework similar to Rails, but it's running on Elixir, which is a DSL running on the Erlang VM. And eDeliver was one way that you can, you can deploy, you could deploy um, Elixir apps and Erlang apps. And <laughs> my name came up and then we started talking and then the rest is history. Interesting. That's really cool. I, um, I don't have much experience with Erlang. I worked in one shop where we used it just a little bit, mm -hmm. but I hear so many people talk about how amazing it is, especially in terms of, you know, distributed applications and um, being able to handle lots of concurrent connections, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. So um, <clears throat> I'm not sure whether, whether this came up in your research, but um, I was on the RabbitMQ team for about seven years. So um, I spent a fair bit of amount of time with, with Erlang. And I think my, the contribution, which I'm, which I'm most uh, happy with, is my involvement with the RabbitMQ Prometheus plugin, which will, was exposing Prometheus uh, metrics from RabbitMQ via plugin built in. And there's no need to you know, have like um, an extra exporter running and reading the API. And then, you know, so it was a lot more efficient. Yeah. And part of, part of that, there was like, how do, you, how do you scale a RabbitMQ cluster? How do you get the most out of it? And how does the Erlang memory allocation work because it's a fascinating system. And when these things crash, because it has like supervision trees and all that, how does that work in a clustered system? You have like three nodes. 
Like what happens? What happens like when a queue moves around? They're all processes, all message passing. Uh, it's a great technology. I really, really like it. And it can take some abuse seriously. Like <laughs> it'll keep <laughs> crashing and restarting and you can write some pretty bad code. Uh, and it's so resilient. I, I loved it for that. I love the resiliency of the Erlang language and the clustering. Now, Amnesia, not so much. It's like the built-in database, really old stuff. Okay. Um, not great, but um, that's what RabbitMQ had for a long time. I mean, for 10 years, very difficult to change because it was like everywhere in the entire code base. But um, apart from Amnesia, I really like Erlang, I have to say. It's really, really nice. <laughs> We're here, obviously, to talk about Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. um, we we uh, had a little chat before we started recording, and um, I uh, had asked you about whether you'd ever contributed to Kubernetes, um, and you have not. And and I thought it was really cool that you are the first person mm -hmm. who's come on that I really think of as a Kubernetes end user, mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody who's like in a SIG or working for a vendor or something like that. And um, I even say in the intro to the episodes mm -hmm. that it's a podcast about the people who build and use Kubernetes and, and you're one of those folks who use it. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you, uh, had some reasons for why you hadn't become a contributor. Yeah. So I really like to play with tech. I really, really enjoy learning things by just trying them out and seeing what sticks and with that mindset, you end up trying a lot of things. So like my, my, my breadth is huge my depth you know not so much so um for example i haven't written a kubernetes operator because there was no need to i i helped contribute to one the RabbitMQ one it's the joy of using the technology and finding combinations for me that make sense and it's the philosophy of kubernetes and the ecosystem which fascinate me and how it fits with everything else. I was doing Kubernetes before Kubernetes, which is, which is a bit weird because people don't realize Cloud Foundry had a scheduler. And I spent like years in that ecosystem. Now, did I write the scheduler? No, but I knew very well how it worked. It used to be called Diego and that was a rewrite of the previous Ruby one. I forget what that one was called. Um, so Cloud Foundry was in a way an orchestration platform. Um, and it was all about containers and there was a runtime and, and all that. Um, now I may be getting some of my details wrong, Diego, I think it was, that was the runtime, but I think it was also the scheduler. I have, I have to, I have to double check that anyways. Sure. Anyways, um, there was also Bosch and Bosch came out of Borg. So how do you basically manage a large number of, of VMs? Right, because it had like a CPI, yeah. which was like a cloud platform interface. You could run it against AWS, GCP, a bunch of things. So it was orchestrating deployments, uh, compiling yeah. packages. You had releases. We had like the, the director, which you can think of it like the Kubernetes API. But it was very similar. So there was Bosch, there was Cloud Foundry, and there was Concourse. And many people don't realize Concourse, it was a CI, but it also had a scheduler and everything was running containers and um these three things that that you were, were i mean pivotal was like a, a big driver and I, I was i was part yeah. of pivotal for like a couple of years um they were an alternative to kubernetes but obviously kubernetes won so 
Kubernetes was was like old stuff to me because I recognized it from Bosch. I recognized it from Cloud Foundry, from Concourse. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. So what else is there? So I never spent enough time to go like, oh, let me contribute to this or let me contribute to that. Like, what else can I combine? What else can I pull? And what comes after Kubernetes? What, what should sit alongside it? And there's like yeah. so many things. So how do you do, for example, upgrades well? That's something which always fascinated me. Um, being part of the Pivotal Cloud Foundry Services team, uh, we, we had to deal with upgrades a lot. Like how do you upgrade RabbitMQ? It's a stateful distributed system and things are really hard in that world. So Kubernetes was always like a playground for me. And I, I, I love like the people, I love the ecosystem. And that's what attracted me and that's what fascinated me. So I tried to do as much of that as possible rather than writing code or documentation or going in depth. Yeah. What you mentioned about Cloud Foundry is super interesting. Um, I didn't ever have much experience with it and I didn't really think of it as like a scheduler like that, but that totally makes sense. Um, there was also Mesos, you know, and of course, Borg, yes. you know, which Google used internally. And so these ideas didn't come out of nowhere, you know, and that's one of the reasons that I like connected with Kubernetes so much in the beginning mm -hmm. is that it was, it was very much an extension of the, the good operational patterns that were out there at the time. Yes. Yes, I mean, when, when health checks came about and um, liveness pros and readiness pros and all that stuff, like, yes, that's exactly what we were trying to build in Bosch. Different checkpoints, different checks, you know, like jobs that run at this, that, and Kubernetes had it. So the concepts that were there were not new, but the way they were combined, it fascinated me and it attracted me. So it was a very easy switch. You know, it didn't take me long. And... I liked how everything was coming together and I love the ecosystem. I mean, all the tooling that was built around it. People say, well, do you need to run Kubernetes? Do you need Kubernetes? Well, no, but do you know about all the things that you need to do, whether it's Terraform or CI CD system? Like, so I'm trying to run as many things as I can in Kubernetes and it works really well. Like, you know, DNS updates yeah. and upgrades and, you know, syncing jobs like cron jobs all that stuff everything that I would run in different systems in different ways i just put it in kubernetes and it works really well and you don't have to touch it being dave yeah one of the things that just blew me away initially and um it was kelsey hightower that mm. i first saw talk about kubernetes like a, a lot of people i'm sure yeah. this was way back in like 2015 was just being able to update that version number in a YAML file and hit save, yeah. you know, and suddenly you're running the new version of the app. You know, that was, um, that was something that, you know, like you, you mentioned, mm -hmm. like how you would build a whole tool to like orchestrate deployments. Right. And, and a lot of us were doing that same kind of thing before Kubernetes. That's right. I mean, Bosch and Cloud Foundry was working exactly like that. They were continuously converging. Um, it, it was slightly different. And there's like, there's features that people I know they don't know it even existed in these <laughs> tools, you know? I mean, um, I don't think we did like the best of jobs like to to make them popular. And I think there were like some critical features which were missing, like we had plugins, for example, for Cloud Foundry, like, like um, blue-green deploys. Blue-green deploys were yeah. not built into the platform. Well, Kubernetes had it, like that's just how it works, you know? <laughs> and it's like, okay, you can configure it to not do that, but by default, it will try to do that because it's the right default. It's, it's what most people want. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely mm -hmm. the 
the um, the pattern at the time that that everybody was kind of leaning towards. Yeah. yeah. I meant to watch the Kubernetes documentary before mm. we talked, and I keep forgetting. Mm. Um, as we discussed on Ship It, I have ADHD. I need to like put a sticky note on my monitor or something to say mm. like watch that documentary. But I know that you saw it mm. and you um, enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. I think from from what I heard, I'm wondering if um, there are any things in there that got revealed that really surprised mm. you and don't worry about spoiling me that's okay yeah i didn't realize how big of an effort it was and how many times uh or how many points there were in at the beginning for for it to like never happen it could have never happened a couple of times <laughs> and by some sort of luck you know chance i don't know how to call it it did, you know, yeah. things just kind of worked out, meetings and um, you have to convince like this VP and that VP. And, you know, some people don't like it. It's like, what is this thing? It's like a waste of time. Like, why, why, why even do this? So that very um, eventful and I'm not eventful. Oh, let me try find a better word. Um, uncertain, the uncertainty around it. Uh, we in a different world, may not have had Kubernetes if it wasn't for specific wow. people, specific moments. And I think that would have been a poorer world. And I know that there's still many people that don't like it and they think it's too complex. Yeah. And that's a fair point. You know, no one, no one disagrees with that. But um, if you try to do all the things that Kubernetes does, you will end up with the same complexity anyways, because the, the things are complex and it's trying to simplify it as much as it can, but they're inherently complex. So... Yeah, um, you will have it whether you want it or not. Uh, maybe not in all in one place for you to see. Ah, this thing is complex. Maybe we have ten things, and it's easy to reason about them individually. But when you put them together, you end up with, I would say, a distributed complexity rather than all in one place. You know, like ah, oh, this thing is hard. What the like? What are CRDs? I don't know. Six hundred CRDs. It blows your mind. All all those things. Anyways, the point being that. It could have not, it's sheer luck that it happened. Uh, some people worked really, really hard to see it through. Um, it was a wild ride for many. People sacrificed a lot of free time, a lot of family time. Uh, they poured themselves into the project. And I'm very thankful to them because otherwise we would not have had it. Um, that is the thing which makes me want to contribute to it or like want to have like been part of that but i wasn't in that group so i couldn't have done that at the time i wasn't aware of these things like looking backwards it all makes sense but at the time i wasn't aware of this but the thing which stuck with me the most and i think the producers did an excellent job of this documentary is what kelsey said at the end uh and he said that it's not a zero-sum game the all the, or the orchestrators like Mesos versus Kubernetes. I don't think he mentioned Cloud Foundry specifically, but in my mind, I, I, I filled it in. Like it was yeah. there. Um, people tried like to, you know, have winners and losers, but why? Why think like that? You know, it's like an ecosystem that is becoming richer, like the more perspectives you have. And I don't think that Docker was like a loser in that battle. And there's like so much there that is so controversial and working with Solomon and working with Sam, working with the people that were behind Docker and that, and that were on the other side from some perspectives, 
it just puts a whole new spin to the whole story. So without going into too many details, it was fascinating to realize that Kubernetes, as amazing as it is, uh, there was so much pain to get it out there and to, you know, sustain it. And the CNCF, I think they did an excellent job. And I think there was like a couple of other things that happened, which would not have, um, which if, which if they hadn't, Kubernetes wouldn't have been where it is today. And I think CNCF is a huge, huge part of it. That's super fascinating. I'll definitely have to watch it. I'm even more excited to now. Um, one of the things that's kind of fascinated me, um, like over maybe the last couple of years is the fact that those early versions of Kubernetes that shipped, like there really weren't the multi-tenancy and security features that I think that people would expect of a container orchestration platform that you're going to run in production. And it always, it's always kind of fascinated me because Google had years of experience running Borg internally before that. And so I'm, I've always been curious about the fact that, you know, I can understand wanting to ship an MVP or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But like Kubernetes is still catching up yeah. from the fact that, that those pieces aren't there. Like they're, they're still constantly releasing new security features to, to fill some of those gaps. Um, the way I use Kubernetes is very different from how people think of Kubernetes. Like for example, I use single node. People go like, what? You're crazy, <laughs> single node, what? That's like, no, it's just wrong. Well, it isn't once you consider how difficult getting the, the PVIs to work, the persistent volumes, um, like the um, like CSI. So like the, the CSI, that's, that's what I meant. Um, mm -hmm. The container storage interface, the specific implementation of, for specific providers, it suffers from certain limitations, which are platform specific. What that means is that sometimes detaching volumes and reattaching them will result in more downtime than if you can reschedule like a whole new app without any persistent storage. If you can do that and if you can restore from backup quickly, that may be the better option. It doesn't work for everyone, but knowing your use case is very important. And sometimes that is the better alternative, which is what we do for changelog. So we had so many issues when we were using Kubernetes the way it was meant to be used. Yeah. And we said, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's look at what we're trying to achieve and let's achieve that. And it doesn't matter what people say, what the best practices are, because they're not best practices for us. And having that and the, the, the courage, the insight, the, I think you need to be a pro user. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate that term best practices. Yeah. And a lot of the folks that, that I, um, know and respect do as well, because there are, there are things that are really good practices depending on your use case. Right. But I, I saw that joke somewhere recently where it's like, you know, the, the senior engineer or infrastructure person, you know, that their, their line is, it depends, yeah. right. You know, which is, which is always the case with me. It's, um, we've all got different use cases and, mm. um, for some people uptime isn't even that important. You know, it really, yeah. it depends a lot on, on what it is that you're doing. Yeah. And if you can put a good CDN in front of it, maybe it's okay if the origin goes down. And how about you design a system where Kubernetes is just one 
of the runtimes and people go like multi-cloud well multi-platform is what i'm thinking so what about using kubernetes and a pass so one instance of the app runs on kubernetes by the way the kubernetes api is amazing i mean that's just like a killer feature and i love it and like the whole control loops and how they work and the insights and there's like a bunch of stuff so and that doesn't change whether you use three nodes or one node it's still the same thing sure so use kubernetes use the platform as a service use whatever else you need like if you have a bare metal instance and there's a way of of just git pushing and the app update the code update makes it somehow on that instance who cares that's the whole point yeah. right you want the the code updates to go out there as, as quickly as possible you want to ship it as quickly as possible to see if it works right because it may not and as long as you optimize for that forget all the other preconceptions what you should be doing or what people think of it i mean if it works for me and it works really well and we didn't have any downtime in months now um i mean okay fastly went down i think last july first time in five years that's i think that's the last time we had like any significant downtime wow <laughs> you know that that's super interesting um so you mentioned that you're working with solomon mm. um we'll talk about that a little bit more um about dagger but i i wanted to ask you you um you had been using docker in production mm. before yeah. um was that just with cloud foundry or were you ever like running the docker daemon and and I'm running um, like containers with that. Mm. Okay, so I, I need to I need to start like with a with like maybe a, take a step back and look at the high level. Okay, regardless of what I'm using in production, I'm trying to do the opposite elsewhere. So I'm trying to always test my preconceptions. So I was thinking that Cloud Foundry is the best thing ever, but is it? Can I see if Docker, for example, and Docker Swarm would work better? So we try that. What about Ansible? I mean, could Ansible be better than, than, than Bosch? In some ways it is, but how do you get that experience? And this is like where like my mindset is that user that tries as many things as possible so that I understand the trade-offs because every piece of technology, including Kubernetes, will have trade-offs. Do you know what they are? If you think, it's amazing and there's no issues with it. Well, you don't know it well enough. So let's talk when you do, and then you, and then you can use the right tech for the right job. I mean, it is what it is. And I was using Docker in production for my own projects, um, like hosting. I, I, I used to, I still host websites for like 20 years now for like customers. That's how I started, like as, as a freelancer, uh, designing websites, hosting websites, WordPress websites, a bunch of other things. So. Could we run them in Docker Swarm? And I still have an instance which runs Docker Swarm, which in production, and it's been running, I don't know, for like six years now, eight years now, I forget how long it's been. Um, and I think it's like, I didn't run an Ansible run in maybe three years. It's bad, <laughs> sure, but you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's it's okay, you know, it's it's okay. It's, you know, it's it's not a problem if if everything is lost. I mean, there are backups and I can restore that. It hasn't been a, a priority. The point is, I have been trying different things out for a long time now, just to understand what works better when. And sometimes Docker was a better choice than Kubernetes. 
And in yeah. some cases, it may still be the case, you know, like maybe Kubernetes is too complex for you. Great. Maybe have a very simple setup. Maybe Docker is enough. Go for it. That's something that we did for Changelog as well. People, one thing which they appreciate is that every year we used to improve the platform. We used to run Docker Swarm, and then we took the next step and went to Kubernetes. And this year we'll take a next step and it'll be the post-Kubernetes Changelog. But it's not like an or. It's not like Docker Swarm or Kubernetes. Now I'm thinking, how does an and proposition look like? Can we do Kubernetes and something else? I mean, that just like shows like a new level of understanding, of maturity, of like how do you orchestrate all those different types of systems? So Docker it was great for a long time and it's still great for some. Um, we don't use it for changelog anymore, but I still use it myself in certain places. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to tell you the Ubuntu version because it's so old. It's like out of support. <laughs> I will not give you the public IP address of, of that instance. Of the security oh, yeah. people listening to this are just cringing right yeah, now, yeah. right? They will they will not enjoy that. They will not enjoy that. I mean, that thing has a crazy uptime. You know, when this used to be a thing, like my instance has like a thousand days of uptime. Well, oh yeah, I think it's like that used to be how you measured like how good the sysadmin you were is is what the uptime yeah. was. I mean, this instance has like thousands of days of uptime, <laughs> which is not a good thing. But there you go. But I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. And um, I feel the same way about Nomad, you know, like um, I know there are shops out there who use Kubernetes and Nomad both, yeah. right? It doesn't have to be either or. Yeah. And they use Nomad for some of their use cases because it's a better fit. And I think for some shops, especially if you're really heavily invested in the other HashiCorp tools as in like that whole ecosystem, yeah. that using Nomad might make a lot more yeah. sense. I wish I had more time to play with all the all different technologies series like Nomad. I wanted to try it for such a long time. I kept mentioning, I think, when I interviewed Katie Gamanji, I was telling her that if I was to choose an alternative to Kubernetes, it would be Nomad. Um, this was, yeah. I think, mid-2021. I would still love to be able to try Nomad out, but it's just not enough time, priorities. Uh, but yeah. Um, all right, so let's get to Dagger now. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, new startup, um, Solomon Hikes is there, mm -hmm. one of the co-founders of Docker. Um, I'm super intrigued by this. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing Solomon tweet about it mm -hmm. and I, I went and looked at the website. Um, I'm taking it you're one of the first few employees there, yeah, like one of right. the first handful. Yeah, that's right. So. I mean, Solomon, he, uh, he, he's the one that, you know, it's, it's, he is instantly recognized like everybody, uh, or almost everybody knows Solomon for, for his involvement with Docker, but there's other people that, that are part of Dagger that were at Docker as well. I want to, uh, yeah. mention Sam, uh, I want to, uh, Sam Alba, let me, let me use full name, Sam Alba, Andrea Luzardi, people don't know him because he is not someone that you would know, but he was an essential person in creating Docker Swarm. And, you oh, know, wow. like the, the whole architecture, how it all works. Um, he, he knows the most about Docker Swarm because he helped build it. And I don't want to like big him up too much. I don't want to say like he is the creator of Docker Swarm, but maybe, I mean, to some, from some perspective, he is. Um, yeah. um, there, there's, uh, who, who else? Uh, Joel and Guillaume and Richard. And there's like, so many other people have been joined, like Helder and uh, Camille, and um, I think we're 
13 now, 12, 13. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's changed so quickly. So I've been here for, for two months and there's all these interviews and new people. So it's like, you know, it's like, I, I know that he or she will be joining, but I can't say just now. So there's like, in my yeah, mind, sure. there's like a lot more people with us than there actually are, but uh, all is changing very fast. Um, it's an amazing team. It's an amazing team. And the, my, my guiding principle when, when I, um, was thinking of what comes next for me after RabbitMQ and VMware, I was saying it will have to be a startup, but it will have to be a startup uh, with a handful of people that I'm getting really well with, that I enjoy just every single interaction with, and that I'm just like blown away every single time I get to talk to them. And it took me a while, you know, to figure out who this group is and um, ShipIt was helping a lot, you know, in terms of having different conversations with different companies, with different sure, people, you yeah. know, like finding what am I actually looking for? Like, what does this thing look like? Like, what, what is important to me? And I don't know, it was like, it's really difficult to describe, but between Solomon's genius and vision, I mean, he's just, uh, I, it's really hard to describe a person like him. I never met a person <laughs> like him. He's... He's, his mind is like a thousand miles an hour all the time. And he's maybe 20 steps ahead. Most of the time, I don't even know what he's talking about. But two days later or three days later, I get it. Like, oh, yes, that makes starts making yeah. sense. And two weeks later, okay, I get, I get it now, Solomon. So he's like so far ahead of everyone else. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Um, Andrea is so strong technically and he has like a very good grasp of LLB and Q and Docker and OCIs and all that stuff. Um, um, Sam, I mean, he's, he's a great people person. He really is. He really understands people and how to interact with them. And I had like such a, such a, and I still have, uh, such a strong connection, um, like on that side, like on, on like the soft skill side, um, Eric, I, I, uh, he's he's also great. I mean, I'm I'm not going to talk too much about that because he's like almost like the uh, I don't know how shall I say this the the um, the the almost like the king that no one knows about, but he's super important, you mm -hmm. know. And he's like you should know about him. I mean, the fact that he's there makes all the difference. But he's he's really important. And this group of people that I worked with and um, because we did like um, a Ship It episode, I think Ship It 23, that was like um, about Dagger, trying it out. Uh, we did Ship It episode 33, which was like a Christmas special where we converted the changelog, we migrated the changelog pipeline from CircleCI to GitHub Actions using Dagger. And oh, wow. trying these things out and working with different people in the Dagger team made me realize this might be it. These could be the people that I've been looking for. And That's a couple of other things happened and everything just fell into place. It was just, it was just meant to happen. That's, that's, that's. So I, I know, felt. yeah. So I know the dagger isn't out there yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is a website that's got some yeah. kind of conceptual information about what's going on. Do you, can you describe it for us? Yeah. Like on a high level, sure. what, what dagger is about? Okay. So dagger is. I, I want to say it's a CI CD toolkit because that's how it was known, but it's so much more than that. So let me talk about the things that I think are so difficult in the CI CD ecosystem today. Um, because people relate to this a lot more. 
One of the things is not being able to run your CI locally. GitHub Actions, any Circle CI, you have to commit and push to see mm. if it works. Yeah. Well, what if you could run it locally? What if you didn't have to commit and push? You just make a change, you run it, and see if it works. Okay, so that's the one thing. The other thing is... Wow, okay, that that one right away yeah. has got my attention, I know, right? I because know. I think there's... there's uh, our CEO and I have talked about this before, our CEO at Loft, um, Lucas, um, about the fact that there's so many people out there who kind of rely on the results of the CI run, yeah. right? To know whether their code is working mm -hmm. or not. Um, to they, they rely on that integration testing and, and all of that. But, um, but as we know, like tightening those feedback loops is, yeah. is um, super helpful in terms of velocity. But, but also I think in terms of like, making the developers feel good about the work they're doing, right? Because, like, nobody wants to sit around for an hour and oh, find yes. out whether the thing they checked mm -hmm. in is going to work mm -hmm. or not. Definitely. So no queuing, no anything like that. You run it locally. As long as there is a Docker engine, um, Dagger can figure everything else out. Now, Dagger needs BuildKit, which is, like, one of the superpowers, and I'll, I'll get into that next. But I want to talk about... So first of all, there's, like, this local CI. The second thing is having a way of describing your pipeline, which think go format, think defining types and defining constraints. So no more YAML, no more like, will this even work? Like, did I miss a space or did I maybe set the correct value or will 1.0 be converted to one and not remain 1.0 because you have to double quote it. Like, like various <laughs> YAML weird things. So I've, I've never experienced anything like that. I have no idea what you're really? talking Really? Okay, great. Yeah, it's so bad. You just <laughs> want to forget about it. It's been erased from your memory. <laughs> yeah, a day later, right? A day later. Oh, damn it, the double quote. You know, I know what you mean. So, yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time with YAML, with, with, with Bosch, with Cloud Foundry, with Kubernetes. It's like a decade of YAML. And uh, there is a love-hate relationship with it. And when Q came along, which is a configuration language, which was inspired by GCL, the Google configuration language, a lot of cool stuff coming from Google, like Kubernetes, GCL, and Q is one of them. So what if you could declare things in a way that is so easy to validate and format, like literally think Go code. You're writing your configuration and it's still configuration. It's, you know, it's, it's not like you're not programming. Uh, you're just writing your configuration. You, you can lint it, you can, for it, you can format it. It just has built-in support like in your code editors and you know that it looks right. So yeah, you write Q, you don't write, and this is like Q that, for example, Q is... I think I have to double check this. I'm, I'm, so Q is spelled C-U-E for yeah. those folks listening. I will uh, link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Configure, unify, execute. That's what the three things stand for. Q is a superset of JSON. Uh, what that means is that if you're familiar with JSON, and most people are, um, it will come really, really easy. So you can take Q, like a Q file. You can do Q export whatever the file is dot q and you'll get json mm -hmm. spit out oh wow so that makes it really really easy to wrap your head around and work with but you have types you have constraints you have so many other powerful things and declaring complex things like complex flows 
is really easy. It has like this, this, this concept of disjunctions, which it combines things, knows like which branch to follow. And it's a really powerful way of describing configurations. Um, as much as I used to love uh, YAML, um, I think after I discovered Q, I just want to write Q everywhere. So how do we simplify it? How do you, because you, you, you can take you really far and like it becomes, can become a bit cryptic, but I think it has the potential of being the next YAML. Like what comes after YAML? I think this could be it. We'll see. I mean, I, may I really wrong, need to, but yeah, I really need to take cool. a look at it because, um, what you're, what you're saying is super interesting mm -hmm. to me. And this is an area. You know, I did years mm. in the configuration management yeah, world like you, you yeah. know, I was working with Puppet yeah. as a user for a while and then I worked there and, and, you know, it had its own DSL and I've worked with YAML as well. And, um, I feel like a lot of, a lot of people's, um, relationship with YAML yeah. isn't love, hate, but it's maybe hate like yeah, yeah, or something, yeah. you know, yeah, I know, like, I know. there's, I know. there's a yeah. lot of, a lot of pain mm. people feel with YAML. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. Um, the other thing which I want to say, actually, actually, so, so, so there's, so there's, the, so there's the local CI aspect, there's a configuration aspect, and then there's BuildKit. Okay, so BuildKit is how Docker internally executes the instructions in a Docker file. So every single like Docker file line. And this happened like in the last, I don't know, three, four years, five years. Um, it has this mode where it can parallelize instructions and every single yeah, line yeah. is just like a way of running it. So imagine this DAG, which gets created from this Docker file. So DAG is a, a DAG, a graph. Exactly, like a, the, the direct cyclical graph, like a graph which gets created yep. from all the instructions in a Docker file. And then off you go and you execute them. And, that, and they run in the LLB the low-level builder, which is uh, part of BuildKit. And BuildKit is part of Docker Engine. But that is only 10% of what BuildKit can do. It has caching properties. It has volumes, secrets, how to handle secrets securely so that they don't leak, which is something that we've been told not to do in Docker files because this was never enabled in Docker files, but this is possible. You can, you can get secrets through in your pipelines in a secure way. They will not leak and they'll be discarded correctly and everything will be great. So you can get like secrets from like the secret store, use them just like, you know, where they're needed and then securely discard them, whether it's an environment variable, whether it's a file. So this is what Kubernetes was not able to solve easily. Uh, because base yeah. 64 is like, let's be honest. It's like, seriously. <laughs> I, I prefer rot yeah. 13 myself. Um, right. Sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyway. So, 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 so coming back. So, so BuildKit and LLB, it's like some amazing, an amazing technology. And that's what Dagger uses for the runtime. So all that Q generates instructions for the LLB, creates this DAG that LLB just goes and execute, executes. And it has built-in caching properties. So, hey, I've already ran this step. I don't need to rerun it. You have caching validation. So imagine pipelines that automatically know which steps have run and that, that they don't need to run, which makes things wow. really, really fast.
really fast. And from from looking at the website, it looks like I can I can describe mm -hmm. what my pipeline is, mm -hmm. and it's portable. I can move it between exactly. You can run it locally. CI tools. Yes, because you you do dagger do. This is changing by the way. It used to be dagger up, and it will just execute in dagger, and it doesn't matter whether it's Circle CI, whether it's GitHub Actions, whether it's GitLab, it doesn't matter where this runs, because Dagger internally, it interprets this queue and it sends it to LLB, which is like BuildKit. And BuildKit, as long as there is like a Docker engine, it will automatically spin up a specific version of BuildKit, what it needs, like pulls down a container, whatever, it like figures all that stuff out. Right, right. So yeah, it doesn't matter which CI you're using. That's really fascinating. That was the part that definitely leapt out at me because I'm I'm sure that there are a lot of folks who, you know, at some point or another, you maybe outgrow your CI system or something else comes along that you want to have a look at. And and that's one of those things that really I don't want to say it's like a vendor lock-in thing because it's it's really not the vendors who are choosing to do that. You know, it's not something intentional, but there are people out there still using Jenkins, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've just invested so much time and energy into like building up this this Jenkins infrastructure yeah. and and building up, you know, um, test suites that run with it and all of that. And and that idea of, you know, that all being something that you could just move to another CI system yeah, when you see a better one yeah. is is fascinating to me. Okay. Uh, permission to blow your mind, and I'm going to use some of Solomon's. Well, okay, <laughs> I guess. Okay, if you want, <laughs> I don't have to. Okay, <laughs> no, so let's let's do okay, it. Okay, let's do it. So, so there's like two other things, and these are not obvious things. Uh, it took me a while to understand what Solomon was talk was on about for months, but I think I get yep. it now. Okay, so do you like make files, Rich? Um. I mean, I can't say that I've used them a ton, to be honest, but um, but sure. I love makefiles. Like uh, most of changelog infrastructure is managed with makefiles, uh, including yeah. like kubectl installation, canines installation, templating, pulling this dependencies, pulling that depends. It's like a lot of makefile in the changelog repo, which by the way is public. What if we could capture different targets as packages as dagger packages that others could reuse what about for example we have a package that knows how to template and configure and apply kubectl manifests or helm whatever without mm -hmm. you having to worry about any dependencies on your host so anything that you would put like in targets think about putting them in dagger packages and then sharing them as you used to do with docker images build a docker so file you mean the targets in the docker file exactly. right github actions yep. is doing a bit of that with the marketplace right you have like all the github actions but it's specific to that ci system circle ci right. has orbs what if there were these packages that everyone could help contribute and they would belong to the community you know do you know how to deploy Erlang and Elixir apps really, really well? So how about we encode that in a package, we put it in the universe, and it's actually called the Dagger universe, think mm -hmm. Docker Hub, and anyone can use it. So you don't have to figure out what are the, I, I'm going to use best practices, but what is, what is the simplest way to deploy, for example, a Elixir app? 
blue-green, all the stuff, the compilation of assets of like different types, the caching, all those things will be encoded in a package. It's out there and anyone, anyone can use. So again, think GitHub Actions Marketplace uh, or CircleCI Orbs that everyone contributes and everyone uses. That sounds fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm a very, very much a, a fan of that pattern of, you know, these community, mm -hmm. you know, kind of marketplaces or whatever where people can share code. Um, absolutely. Like the Docker images. That was that was it. I mean, now you just like, is there a Docker image for it? Let me just pull it. Like, I, I don't want to like yeah. you know, figure out how to build this thing or how to start it or how to configure it. Um, just give me like the one liner and then off you go. Is uh, Decker going to be open source? Uh, we yes. Know? Yes. So, Fantastic. Uh, so what happens is like we keep saying, oh, we're going to launch like this week. Ah, oh, there's but like, this is, like other thing. Okay. So, and what about like this documentation page? Yes, we have to write this documentation page. So there's like the closer we get to launch date, we realize, okay, maybe, maybe two more days, maybe like another week. And this has been going on for, <laughs> I think, maybe two, three weeks now. So it's, it should have been live. Um, public, you know, open source, all that. Right now, it's still in private beta, but it won't be for long. It won't be for long. It, it will open up um, to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I have to say this maybe contradicts some things I said in the last episode um, with Celeste, but mm. honestly, that documentation stuff is overrated. Like, people can read the code. Um, just push it out there. Well, you, you say that, but that's what the, if the private beta taught us anything is that people need good documents. Like how, how, like if you don't know the dagger, you can run it locally. And what is the simplest way of running it locally? There's no way you need to look at the code and figure this stuff out. You know, you need to take, and, and my perspective is taking people on journeys. So yeah. someone that has never seen dagger before, what is the journey that you want to take that person on? So do that. You know, that is that is the the first documentation that we will be capturing. But as you write it, you realize actually this is way too complicated. A specific, you know, thing that you're trying to do with Dagger. So how do we simplify it? Okay. Can we do like a plan B, like a workaround? And we have a workaround. It's good enough. You know, it works. It's not pretty, but it works. Can we ship this? Okay, we can. So let's move on. And then you, you go through that process and you realize, yeah, this, this looks good. We can get it out there. And that's what's happening yeah. right now. That's what's happening behind the scenes. Well, I'm, I'm very excited to see it. Uh, I meant to sign up actually for the beta, mm -hmm. but I haven't had a lot of time to look at that's it okay. currently. But um, it sounds super exciting. One other thing I want to ask you about before we go, um, I, I actually didn't end up getting the, um, the call out for listener questions, so we don't have any of those. Um, but I wanted to ask you about one of your controversial opinions mm -hmm. that we've discussed. Um, okay. You mentioned that um, you don't like the GitHub sort of model of development mm. where, you know, people have got their own feature branches and they open up a pull request and, and that gets merged. Um, tell us about why, why it is that you don't like okay. that. So I see pull requests as a form of inventory. It's things that you have going on that you haven't finished. And it's like, it's like limbo state. It's not out there. You cannot learn from it other than from a limited set of people. And you don't know how it integrates with everything else. How many times do you have to rebase and do a lot of like busy work like that? And the longer a branch goes, 
and it will go. I mean, some branches, you know, can go for weeks. It's, it's sure. okay. But what if we didn't have branches? What if we didn't have pull requests? What if every single commit that you did went straight out into production? Um, so yeah. this is very much the view of the continuous delivery book. Yeah. Uh, this is something that Jez Humble talks mm. about a lot. Um, um, it's, it's super interesting to me. And, um, I was, I was, uh, I don't know, kind of surprised when you brought it up. Not, not that, um, I don't agree with that point of view, but, but it is just so it's kind of become a contrarian point of view at this point, because everybody is so much ingrained in this GitHub workflow that, that so many of us use. Yeah. Um, I, I understand that. I understand the value of having an issue and I understand the value of having a PR and then having like all those comments and having all that context there. Um, I, you know, generate a lot of that type of content comments and, you know, yeah. rebases and force pushes and squashes so that it all <laughs> looks nice and commit messages and all that stuff. But at some point I'm wondering, could there be an easier way? Could there be a better way? And there are days when I think, ah, oh, this is just so much work and I feel like it's busy work and it makes me want to do something else. What if I would just like push a commit and it would just go out there? So maybe we need to centralize discussions and share context in a way that doesn't prevent us from getting code into production straight away, seeing how it works. You have rewrites, you have like, oh, I, I, I hate rewrites because you don't know how well it's going to work in practice. And the longer the rewrite goes on for, the higher the risk, it will not be what you want. It will not be what users want and you won't know until you get it out there and I forgot about this or I forgot about that. <laughs> and then you realize, ah, oh, man, it's like, I wish I knew this like two weeks ago or whatever. And when you have like, again, the larger the team, there's like so many things happening in parallel. And then by the point, by the time you integrate, it's like, ah, oh, there's like so many problems. And then this was like done in different ways. And, you know, okay. And then you need to like refactor code and, um, so sometimes I wish we just had one branch, you know, every commit goes out there and there was a different way of structuring the conversations, which didn't involve other branches. I think that's it because PRs is okay. PRs don't need to be linked to branches in my opinion. I think that's, oh, I think that's yeah. where the issue comes from. PR means branch. I don't think it should. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, what you would really need to go down that route is lots of safety around your deployment process, right? Of course. You know, and this is something that James Governor talks about a lot mm. and other people as well. Mm. James uses the term progressive delivery, you know, that idea that, you know, you're maybe only, you know, pushing stuff out to a, a small amount of canary hosts or something at first, you know, um, while you validate things. Netflix does a lot of this. Yeah. They have a lot of um, automated testing in place to make sure that the things that go out to canaries are are okay to push farther out than that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of work people have been doing uh, around those processes. And um, I'm sure there are lots of folks out there who have cried at some point when they were trying to rebase something and it wasn't working. Yeah, I know. I know. And then dependencies change and ah, and then, and then like you have like a lint issue. Oh my goodness me. Like, why couldn't I see this before? and other things like that. So you're right. 
you're right. There's like a bunch of things around integrating when you when you go into everything goes into main and then that's where like the problems start and then something else happens between you merging and someone else merging you're like ah i didn't see this one coming and if you like take smaller steps and constantly validate am i going in the right direction that's that's all it is does this work that's why shipping it often like every like i wouldn't say like every day every hour just get it out there and see if it works yeah. Because it's those learnings. Focus on the learnings. Forget about everything else. Because you don't know. And st start with that. Start that you don't know. Even if you think you do, you don't. But try it. And based on what you see, based on the observation, and that's something else. And not guessing. Like, you did this, and then someone did that. Okay, so maybe let's... Ch and then you made a change, but someone else said this. So you're just, just constantly iterating on, on that. That's, yeah. a, that's the way I think it should be. All right. Well, uh, I think that we're going to wrap it up there. I want to thank you very much mm -hmm. for coming on, Gerhard, um, especially in light of the fact that you have the flu right yeah. now. So you um, you deserve have, some sort of I have a great voice. I have a great voice right now. <laughs> so that's the positive. There's always a positive. So, so there's a trade-off. Yes, yes, I'm not feeling great, but <laughs> I have a great voice and it's not the microphone. It's not like the the mic preamp is just you know the flu. <laughs> so if there you, are advantages. If you all listen to if you all listen to our ship it episode, you'll you'll hear well, what he's talking yeah. about. He's about an octave lower right now <laughs> than normal. Um, Gerhard, thanks so much for coming on. Um, if people are looking to find you on the internet, um, how would they do that? Um, at Gerhard Lazu on Twitter. Um, that's like Twitter. I like it. You know, yeah. I'm 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 not extremely active. I mean, nowhere near as active as you, Rich. But um, I'm there. It's it's. Uh, don't you have like five hours a day to devote no. to Twitter? <laughs> no, I don't actually. <laughs> but yeah. Um, uh, but um, so so that's that's one. And the other one, like changelog.com forward slash ship it. Uh, that's like where I share like every week. You know, various conversations uh with 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 other people we need to get you like on a more regular schedule rich that's that's what i'm thinking and we need to get more sponsors for your show that's an, the other thing which i'm thinking and i was almost almost finished completing this patreon but i wish more people would sponsor the show because i think it's great like you know it's a small donation um just like to help you with the show um and i think if if more people did that, maybe you would be able to produce episodes more frequently. I would like, I would like to see that. It's it's literally one of the the Patreon goals mm. to hit an amount where I can pay someone to mm. edit the podcast, mm. which is by far the biggest um, the biggest chore mm. of it right now. Um, it takes me probably like about six hours mm. to edit an episode wow. and um, and fill out the transcript and all of that. So um, it's uh, it's pretty time consuming. Mm. And if I could just have these wonderful conversations and and only do that part of it um yeah i definitely would be able to do it more often so i, I really appreciate that that's super kind of you mm. i'll definitely have a link to the patreon in the show notes okay um and uh yeah if someone listening has a company that wants to throw some money loft at sh Kubernetes podcast loft sh that's that's all about i'm sure my <laughs> i'm sure my employer would if i asked right them, but uh but yeah, um, feel free to hit me up mm. if anyone wants to talk about sponsorship. Mm. But um, thank you so much, Gerard. That was very kind to say. And um, 
it's been fantastic to talk with you yet again. Um, wish you all the best with the uh, with Ship It, and um, I wish you a good recovery from your flu. Thank you, thank you, Rich. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Cube Cuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burrows. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Mon Placer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>